Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today, I don't have a guest. I'm going to answer your questions that you put out on Twitter. Uh, there's a lot of questions, including questions about COVID, questions about communism, questions about Bitcoin. Hopefully you enjoy this. Well, I don't have a guest for you today, and this is going to be something of an experiment. I haven't done anything like this really for like a whole hour. I, I've certainly ranted on things for five minutes at a time. Uh, I've done YouTube videos like that, but I haven't had a chance to really go through some questions and rant like I usually do, uh, like I do in real life. If you've ever met me in person, you know that I can go on about quite a few things and talk about different things. So um, yeah, that's what I'm going to try to do in this episode. Uh, ho hopefully you guys enjoy it. And uh, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you know, this this what the whole podcasting game is all about. So without further ado, let's get to some questions. All right, so I have a question from Hodel to Moon. What is the best way to secure your Hodel stash relative to working income? For example, one week work in hot wallet is sufficient versus one year work in multi-sig setup. And what services, devices would you consider best long, uh, along this spectrum? So uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Hodel to Moon. Um, there's a lot of different ways to store things and depending on your needs, you need to have different kind of wallets for them. Uh, if you're able to pay very quickly, you might want to use a lightning wallet with maybe like, you know, a uh, hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin in there. Um, if you're, you know, using something for regular payments to somebody, you might need to have like 500 to a thousand dollars, especially if you have some sort of service that you're using, like a VPN or something like that. Uh, if you're storing for the long term, though, uh, multi-sig is definitely the best option. Now, what services devices would I consider? Uh, for something like Lightning, I think um, a wallet on your phone is just fine unless you happen to be using being a routing node or something like that uh, breeze wallet or Potomagin and there's many others uh, that would work perfectly fine for something like that um, I also think if you're storing up to you know five hundred dollars or so it's totally fine to use something like blockstreams green wallet or samurai or wasabi or something like that um, uh, the nice thing about Wasabi is that it lets you use cold card, which is a hardware device, so that would be nice as well. Uh, for your HODL stash, for something that you're going to hold long term, I think you really do need a multi-sig setup so that, that you don't have a single point of failure. And that might mean a 2 of 3 or a 3 of 5, something to that effect. Uh, there are multiple services that I would consider for that. Uh, Casa and Unchained Capital are two of them. There's also, you know, rolling your own stuff. There's certainly a lot of development uh, going around there. But thank you for your question. Hopefully that answers. All right. Matt Kaufman asks, are there any concerns for Bitcoin with quantum computing? Um, I mean, I've studied this at least a little bit and, uh, and just have a decent idea of what's going on with quantum computing. Generally, um, I don't think it's a threat at all. I don't think it's... Um, 
you know, I, I don't think the processing is fast enough. I don't think the coherence is good enough. I don't think um, much of what they hype is, is really there. Um, and the thing about quantum computing is that it's, uh, it gets a lot of mainstream press because people want a smart sound about it. And the fact of the matter is it's, uh, it's kind of like cold fusion. It, it gets a lot of press about it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's close. Um, innovation is not something necessarily that you can really predict. Uh, and people that have tried have found that it's, it's a, generally a pretty bad bargain. Uh, People think that who think that quantum computing is just going to linearly get better, it, they're they're in for a rough time. It, it it doesn't happen that way. All right, uh, Pedro asks, do we need more implementations of Bitcoin? Different teams, different languages, same consensus. Well, we already have that. We have, um, you know, not only Bitcoin Core but Lib Bitcoin, Bcoin. We also have uh, BTCD. Uh, not uh, several other uh, ones in different languages like Haskell and Python and things like that. Um, all of that is to say that, that that already kind of exists and they have to sync to the consensus of the rest of the network. Uh, they might accidentally uh, fork or something like that, in which case they would have to come back into consensus. Um, you know, different versions of Bitcoin Core also have that uh, same problem. Which, uh, which they have to correct every once in a while, I, as we saw with uh, the inflation bug from a couple of year, uh, about a year ago, I guess. Uh, but all that said, it, it already exists, so I wouldn't really necessarily worry about it. All right, L2 scaling solutions other than Lightning. Well, there's a bunch of them. Uh, I mean, Liquid is the most obvious one, uh, but there's stuff like state chains and, uh, you know, RGB, I guess, uh, on top of Lightning. Um, you know, other, other exchanges in many ways can be considered second layers because they're not decentralized in any way, but they you, you can transfer Bitcoin like, um, Coinbase or something like that to another Coinbase user and it doesn't show up on chain. So by definition, it's an L2 solution. So uh, we don't know ex exactly uh, which one will take over, but uh, we'll, we'll be watching, obviously. Let's see. Talk about different coin join implementations. Yeah, that that's a that's a more complicated topic and they all have different um you know, benefits and drawbacks. The main thing I would say is that you, you need to look at the anonymity set that you're presented with. Um, uh, something like CoinSwap doesn't have that big of an anonymity set, uh, whereas like a very large coin join would. Uh, would. Um, but all of that is really a way to add privacy to your transactions. And that depends on uh, you know, who's doing the transacting and how many people you can uh, be in an anonymity set with. All right, uh, let's see. Is running a full node a good idea for noobs uh, because of more points of failure? I think it's a good idea just uh, to learn. And if you do have a wallet that can use it, uh, like, for instance, the Bitcoin Core wallet, then running a full node is a good idea. Even if you can't connect to your own node or if it goes down, you can always connect to somebody else. Um, it's easier to depend on somebody else uh, whenever you need it. Uh, but you know, having your own is definitely better for your own privacy. 
Uh, what is your favorite setup for noobs? Um, I mean, generally, I just show them how to set up a wallet on their phone and get a sm uh, get them to buy a small amount of Bitcoin and put it in there, and they can kind of play with it from there. But more than that, I don't really teach them. Um, it's up to them to learn. Uh, do you f prefer a dedicated computer or dedicated mobile device for Bitcoin transactions? Uh, I mean, I definitely prefer... Uh, like for smaller-ish transactions, just like using my cell phone. But for savings and things like that, hardware devices are pretty much a must. Uh, can multiple accounts on hardware wallets be linked with chain analysis? Uh, it really depends on how you use it. Uh, if they both go to end up going to the same uh, place, uh, then of course they can be linked. Uh, if you are giving away the XPUB or the root XPUB key, um, which likely you're not doing if you're a, a noob, uh, then yeah, you're, no one's going to be... If, if somebody knows that XPUB, then they can link it as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's not doable via chain analysis unless you spend them together. All right, let's see... Uh, let's see, my thoughts on DeFi, I've, I've already said this uh, quite a bit, but there's, there's no real, you know, value being added to the network. If you're loaning something out to somebody, unless that loan is being used to create new goods or services, that, that's just money being moved around. It doesn't actually do anything. And this is, this is the big problem with a lot of, um, you know, financial innovation, quote unquote. And that's... Uh, that's not really it, it's not really doing anything it's not creating value and it's what in economics that you call a zero-sum game and that's the big problem with DeFi not uh, like the entire space is full of people that aren't adding adding any value they're just moving money around so what does that mean that means that for every winner there's a loser and uh, and that that means that Somebody is making money, but somebody is also losing money. And if uh, if you think you're going to be the one to make money, you better ha be able to back that up with uh, very um, you know good skills or something like that. Because ultimately, uh, most people in it are going to lose money. Now, is it wrong to go and you know exploit all the noobs that are coming in and some stuff like that? I mean, depends on how you do it. But in general, you know, I mean, if that's what you happen to be good at, that might be okay. But as far as uh, DeFi itself, it's like no one's actually adding value. No one's creating a good or service that's benefiting or adding uh, more productivity or anything like that. It's just people moving money around. And that's, uh, that's why I think it's, a, it's kind of a useless project. All right. Um, let's see. Past podcast bets. Uh, well, I mean, the only one that I really did publicly, uh, I mean, I, I challenged Roger Ver, but he, he wouldn't agree uh, despite all this documentation I have. He just he's just kind of a big weasel. Um, as far as Joe Lubin, he never finalized the bet despite me going to consensus twice and you know, us shaking on it and hugging it out and all that stuff. He, he just refuses to finish the actual uh, bet. So I, I've just sort of given up at this point because I think everyone that's paid attention uh, to that at all knows that Joe is a complete weasel and he, uh, he, you know, he wasn't going to bet. I actually had somebody tell me 
um, like the very first time when you know we made that bet on stage, like a, a couple days later, he just told me, you know, he's not going to bet with you. And I was like, why? Why? Why isn't he going to bet with me? And uh, he said, well, just just the way he uh, he talked about it. Uh, if if he really wanted to bet, he would have immediately contacted you and set up the terms. Because when you're confident in something, that's what you would do. Um, but if you're not confident in something, then you make this grand gesture and sort of make it seem like you want to, but actually shirk responsibility right afterwards. So, he, he, uh, and I think he was right. Um, you know, you can kind of tell a lot by how people behave or their actions rather than their words. All right, let's see. Uh, when lightning? Uh, lightning's already going on. Um, I, I think the big thing about lightning that a lot of people don't really realize is that it's, I think, the setup for a decentralized web. And if you think about the web right now, it's a bunch of walled gardens with, uh, you know, like Facebook and Google and things like that. And basically everyone calls into their central server. It's not really any different than a centralized service. Um, I think the model that Lightning enables is something like BitTorrent, uh, but instead of sharing, uh, you know, different data and uh, to make downloads really fast, uh, instead, what you have is the ability to, you know, be a node on the network and uh, be a data broker or whatever um, and get paid for it in some way. And the nice thing about being a lightning node and having channels open and so on is that it costs something. And you might think that's a detriment, but in actuality, that's a real feature because that means that it's very hard to Sybil attack. And if you don't know what a Sybil attack is, it's uh, this idea that you can flood the network with a lot of uh, sock puppets, essentially, um, and do things in a way to make it seem like a lot more people are voting for something or wanting something when it's actually not. And this is a big problem on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on any of these, YouTube, everywhere. Um, in large part because anyone that's creating content has an incentive to want more views uh, for advertisers and so on. So, and it's not really costing them bandwidth; it's causing costing the central uh, centralized, uh, you know, server uh, bandwidth and so on. So, uh, you know, they get uh, the creator gets all of the benefits of faking views, uh, where and likes and retweets and all that stuff. Uh, and the ser central server pays the cost of it. So in a sense, it's a, it's a terrible incentive and it, it makes for a lot of gaming of these services. So I think what Lightning does is because of the presence of channels and money, um, it makes Sybil attacks really, really expensive. It makes sock puppets expensive and so on. So um, I, I'm thinking that this will be an excellent way to defeat that problem. Imagine a forum where in order to get on, you have to have a lightning channel open with like you know, half a Bitcoin. Uh, this would be obviously for people that are fairly rich and so on. Um, that would prove that you have skin in the game and you're not just, you know, like doing whatever. So uh, you know, maybe you get better discussions out of that or something like that instead of just getting free signups or whatever. 
Uh, and that's a lot better, I think, than something like Facebook, which makes you, you know, put in a photo and a phone number and all this other stuff and all this personal info that goes to a central server uh, and having to prove that you are a person that way. Um, and this this has been the pattern for a long time with a lot of these services is them asking more and more of your information, uh, including stuff like phone number to make sure that you are actually a person. Uh, the, this is a big problem, civil attacks. Uh, so by doing this, I, I think they're all hoping that, uh, I, you know, that you, you don't get to do that. But e each time, you know, uh, the people that are spamming these networks that are trying to create sock puppets and civil attacking various things, uh, they, they stay one step ahead of the game. It's, it's not hard to get a phone number. Um, and so then they, you know, disable all voice over IP numbers. And then like, it's a frustrating user experience for those people who, you know, only have voice over IP numbers and so on. So it, it's, it's a tricky situation for them, but you know, with lightning, you, you solve all of that. And I'm hoping that something like a decentralized Twitter uh, comes up out of lightning, uh, maybe a decentralized, uh, you know, podcasting platform or something like that. I, I would love that too. All right. Uh, communism in the USA. All right. This one is meant to be a little bit of a jest, but I, I have been reading uh, some stuff about Karl Marx that's uh, just absolutely flabbergasting. Like, uh, the, I, I didn't know, for example, that he was he was a Satanist. Like, he literally uh, memorized large passages of uh, Faust, which is by uh, which uh, you know has as one of its characters, Mephistopheles, who's a, who's the devil. He literally memorized large sections of. The Devil's Dialogue and quoted it often in a lot of his letters. And he wrote a couple of plays uh, where, you know, it's it's just very dark. And a lot of people described them as like just like devilish or impish and stuff. So it uh, like just learning about that and then learning about like how uh, Comintern, uh, Communist International, which was uh, part of the Soviet Union's uh, way of spreading the good word of communism all over the world, like just the operations that they had all over the world. You know, they, they infiltrated like every union and, uh, you know, even seminaries and, uh, you know, colleges. And they, they basically tried to make communism more attractive to, in every other country that they could. And they obviously succeeded in many of them, uh, including places like China and Mongolia and Cambodia and uh, you know, Eastern Europe and, uh, and places like that where, you know, communism became really, really popular. And uh, the U.S. was no exception. Um, and it's interesting because, uh, uh, you know, when you read a lot of history books, they make it sound like, uh, you know, Joseph McCarthy and like that whole, you know, looking for communists and stuff like that was just sort of like an illusion, kind of like the Salem witch trials or whatever. But in actuality, there were there actually were a lot of communists in a lot of these organizations, and it was a it was a big deal, and it wasn't just sort of like a show trial. Uh, it wasn't you know looking for witches to burn or something like that. It was actually there were there actually were communists and and various branches of the U.S. government and stuff. And if you look at the actual Soviet side, uh, you know they they actually planned that they they wanted people to infiltrate these places so that you know, the government of the U.S. could eventually be overthrown and communism could come in. And 
uh, it's it's just a really evil, uh, you know, philosophy. Um, it's it, like just sort of like a really weird, um, you know, alliance of many different uh, philosophies that came together. It, it's it, it's just uh, it's just very evil. Uh, let's just say that. All right, uh, what's behind the switch in cowboy hat color? Well, if you haven't heard <laughs> uh, from the last three years or so, basically I wear the white hat uh, when I'm trying to inspire the audience. Um, I wear the black hat when I am in a debate or something like that. It's, uh, it's from the classic motif of black hat or white hat hacker, uh, basically. So uh, that, that's where that comes from. All right, I see. All right, forget the scams, but is DeFi a real deal in the long term? I, I don't think so. Um, I, I, there's nothing decentralized about a loan. Uh, and that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize <laughs> for some reason. Uh, you, you, need, you need some loan, uh, someone to make the loan and someone to take the loan. Now that's, uh, and you need somebody to enforce that. Um, and uh, if you have anything, uh, I mean, I guess you can automate that in some way, but the automation, um, yeah, should take place in some uh, with, with somebody that actually is watching it uh, or is refereeing what, what's supposed to happen. Now, if it's all like completely automated, maybe there's room for that. Um, it's, you know, it would have to be something like, Okay, if I don't pay this back in three months, then it'll come out of this other, uh, you know, asset that I have or something like that. But I mean, those um, like you're you're going to need to coordinate that to a large degree anyway. And yeah, I like yeah, I don't know. I I, I don't think it's really that useful long term. But I could be wrong. All right, let's see. All right, uh, Bitcoin and S&P dominant, uh, correlation and BTC dominance. Well, the thing about uh, the Bitcoin and S&P correlation is that there's just simply a lot of money uh, being printed right now. Um, I think since March, we've had something like $4 trillion increase in the M2 money supply, and that's... Um, that, that sort of thing happens when you're in a global pandemic and you have lots of people closing businesses and giving out PPP loans without asking any questions. There's obviously a lot of fraud in there and stuff like that. But all that money has to go somewhere and, uh, and people are not traveling. They're not uh, certainly not starting businesses. Uh, the, the ones that are you know, paying their employees. What what are the employees using the money on? Well, they're they're not going out and drinking necessarily. I mean, that's uh, you know, bars are one of the first places to close and whatever. So you know, you have to put the money somewhere. And what what's happening is that a, a lot of that money is going towards stocks and Bitcoin. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense because if you're going to put it in dollars, well, that's not a very good idea because it's inflating so fast. Um, you can put it in real estate or stocks and those are traditionally where people tend to put stores of you know store value money or savings um and bitcoin is starting to be used for that purpose and that's why there is some correlation it's uh, it, we're not really seeing 
uh, you know, price inflation of goods uh, yet. What we're seeing is asset inflation, and that's going to happen a lot faster. And that's something, honestly, that we've been seeing for many years, probably, you know, since the 80s or so. Uh, you know, we had stagflation in the 70s, but since then, uh, basically, people have been putting their money into stocks, and that's that's where a lot of the asset inflation's gone. Uh, similar thing with real estate. All right. Uh, when you use a reputable hardware wallet, what are the different levels of trust that an individual is putting into that scenario? Um, well, so you have to trust the vendor, uh, and that's the main thing, that the software running on the device and the hardware is not compromised and that you wouldn't get uh, your private key leaked. Uh, the rest of it uh, depends on, you know, if you connect it directly to your computer, it's possible that the firmware can get updated without you knowing about it or something like that, though that sort of attack is generally very, very difficult to pull off. Um, all right, if a user chooses to have a passphrase, where is the passphrase actually stored? Uh, in your brain, no one, <laughs> nowhere else. If you don't store it, uh, then you're like you can obviously write it down on a piece of paper, but it's not on the hardware device, and that's kind of the idea. Is that if you don't have the passphrase, then you can't access the fund. So uh, um, instead of the device, uh, the passphrase becomes your single point of failure. Uh, let's see here. When Bitcoin to the moon. What do you think about Libra? Well, Bitcoin, I think, is on its way to the moon. Depends on exactly where the moon is for you. Uh, for most people, it's having enough money to be able to retire and not work again. Um, and that will vary depending, depending on the amount of money you have, where you live, and uh, you know the future of you know prices going on in the world and so on. So, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think too much about that. Um, all right. Do you even lift? Yes, yes, I do. I I love powerlifting. Um, I do deadlifts, uh, squats, and bench presses, um, and I've been doing it for seven years now. Um, and it's it's one of my favorite hobbies, and uh, yeah, I, I I enjoy it quite a bit. All right. Uh, talk about crypto and regulation. Are you for it, and when should it happen? Um, so crypto and regulation, I don't really necessarily like, uh, but I do think it's inevitable because governments do like regulating things that, you know, once people complain about it. So imagine, for example, that DeFi completely blows up, which it sort of already did with the yield farming stuff. Um, you can imagine that certain countries will say, well, you know, we don't want our citizens to have to go through this kind of pain again, so we're going to regulate this industry. It could happen. I don't personally like it, and I don't think, uh, you know, there's a lot of good that comes out of that. But that said, it's, it's probably inevitable. Uh, when should it happen? I don't think it should happen at all, but if it happens, then... You know, it's it's sort of uh, the state intrusion into things. All right, how to make a career paid job on Bitcoin? Well, that's a good question, and that's kind of a tricky question because uh, it depends on what your skills are. 
And uh, if you're, for example, a developer, you will have a very different path uh, than if you are, for example, somebody that's very good at marketing. Uh, it depends on whatever your skills are, but um, you know, this is just general advice that I give to younger people, which is that if you are looking to sort of switch careers, uh, the, the way to do it is to find the intersection between your current career and where the, the career that you want. So for example, if you are a farmer and you want to become a, I don't know, programmer or something like that, what you do is find wherever those two intersect and try to go provide value there. So if uh, there's some software for farmers that you use that you find frustrating or some feature that you think uh, people would appreciate, maybe you make um, some sort of open source project for farmers that and market to farmers because you're a farmer and you know what farmers want. Um, and then go from there and find uh, and then try to get hired by these farmer software companies or something like that and then make your way into software business that way. Um, so whatever your current job happens to be, find the intersection with Bitcoin. Um, there might not be that much, but you'd be surprised the more you think about it. Uh, you know, if you happen to be in, I don't know, some sort of government agency or something like that, it might be a little harder. But usually, even there, there's some uh, level of regulation around Bitcoin that you can probably provide some insight on to some company. And that's that's the way to do it. All right. How Bitcoiners can better prepare themselves and their friends and family for the future? Um, yeah, that's a that's a hard question because we don't know what the future holds. Uh, what we do know is that there is a lot of uncertainty, and the way people have traditionally dealt with uncertainty is to save. Uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people have saved in the uh, since the last crisis, in large part because of fiat money. Uh, but thankfully, now that Bitcoin is here. Really, the best way to prepare is to stack sats, right? It's to hold value in something that can't be inflated away from you, that can't be stolen from you. All right, let's see. Exchanges engaging in fractional reserve Bitcoin. Well, that uh, that obviously happens, and uh, and the most famous one was Mt. Gox, uh, and when price started to crash in late 2013, this uh, exposed. Uh, you know just how much of a fractional reserve they were running uh, and this uh, wasn't necessarily because they were being malicious it was just that somebody had stolen a ton of money from them and they were trying to cover it up uh, so I, I suspect that there are at least some exchanges that are already doing that um, but who knows who is uh, especially in the lending market uh, I can't imagine being able to just make the spread between what you're lending out at and what you're paying the saver, because um, you know that that's just not nearly enough. If you're lending out a hundred thousand um, dollars, and you're you know, and the spread is like two percent, you're making like two thousand bucks off that loan. Um, I mean, you you have to have a lot of loans to you know fund an entire company with all of its operations and things like that in order to do that. What you know, normal banks do is 
the spread might be 2%, but you only need one saver for like 100 lenders. Uh, or nowadays, there's no reserve requirement at all. So uh, what, what you end up getting is a lot more loans and, and you know, not very many savers. So like if you can lend out a million dollars on a hundred thousand dollar deposit the the spread gets uh, significant uh, so if you're lending out at two percent and you're paying the saver one percent uh, you're making one percent on a million dollars you're you're making about two percent on most of that million dollars so it it ends up being actually a significant amount of money um, that is you know, you're, you're making like $20,000 on $100,000. So that that's significant. Um, anyway, that that's I, I don't think that sort of thing is necessarily that prominent in Bitcoin. But, you know, I'm sure it happens whether accidentally or on purpose. It's hard to tell. All right. Um, let's see. Are there any actual questions here? <laughs> there, there's a lot of comments. Uh, what happens when, uh, to Bitcoin when Fedcoin comes out? Can the government just delist Bitcoin? I mean, I'm sure they could try, at least on exchanges and so on. But, you know, uh, that's uh, that's going to require a lot of enforcement. Although just having the law there will uh, cause a lot of people to just want to comply. Um, so Bitcoin will probably go down at least for a little bit. But that said, it's it's convenient for a lot of things and across international borders and things. Um, so I, don't know, I, I would imagine a lot of people that store value in Bitcoin uh, will move and things like that. But that said, there's a lot of people in government um, in a lot of these positions that already have Bitcoin and they're they're not going to be happy with that. And there's a lot of people that are going to lobby to make sure that doesn't happen. So, you know, I. Even if Fedcoin comes out, I can't see it uh, necessarily leading to Bitcoin being banned. All right, related to Bitcoin, what's an example or examples of something that you had deep belief or conviction in but ended up being wrong or changing your opinion on? Well, I think uh, the main one that I can think of right now is colored coins. So I worked on this project back in 2013. And if you're not familiar with what that was, it's basically, uh, you know, coins on top of Bitcoin. Uh, so you could, it, it was, <laughs> believe it or not, like Vitalik Buterin was involved in this project way back then. Um, and this was back in 2013. So you, you'd have certain coins that were quote unquote colored and you can use those to trade different assets and things. And my belief back then was that the world needed this, that we needed assets that you can trade that represented something. So, for example, you could have like a local bakery and you can uh, dole out shares in the bakery using color coins and you can keep track and you didn't even have to know who actually owned it and you can still pay them dividends using Bitcoin and so on. Um, and, you know, we built the whole thing. It was operational and all that. But turned out that not like we built it, but they didn't come. And uh, and this was honestly, I, I'll, I'll give this to Vitalik. He, he recognized that you needed to do a lot of marketing. And it turned out that it wasn't existing businesses that came onto platforms like Ethereum, but it was scammy new businesses uh, like ICOs and things like that. So, um, you know, my I, I, I had to reflect pretty deeply on that one. And I realized that 
you know, if you if you build it, they won't just come. And it doesn't matter how interesting the tech is. Uh, if there's no market demand for it, then it's not going to work. And all of the market demand that I've seen for that sort of thing has been artificial. And sadly, that's uh, that's kind of the way that things have gone. Um, is it possible that something like color coins could be useful, you know, in like 20 years after all these scams have played out? Possibly. I, I still kind of doubt it. Um, you know, that's something that uh, I don't see a market for that not a lot of people are demanding and so on. All right. Uh, how is the market uh, going to deal with dead coins, Bitcoins that belong to dead people, lost devices, device malfunctions, etc.? Well, it's a beautiful thing about capitalism is that that information kind of uh, is out there and people take advantage of that information to trade better and so on. Um, I, I think a lot of people suspect that a lot of quote unquote dead coins exist in Bitcoin already. And that's, uh, you know, you, you have to factor that in as far as how valuable Bitcoin is, because that uh, that points to its scarcity. It could it, the more dead coins there are, the more scarce Bitcoin is and so on. So um, are, are we underpricing Bitcoin as a result? Are we overpricing Bitcoin as a result? It's hard to say, but I, I do know that the fact that, uh, you know, Bitcoins that belong to people that have since lost keys and so on, they're pretty much gone. Um, and there's no real way to recover them without uh, without those keys. Uh, what Bitcoin price if no electricity? Well, I don't, I don't think that's... I mean, I guess it would be very little, but I don't think we have a world without electricity, so I'm not sure what uh, what that means. All right, so let's see. Uh, I would like to know what you think of BlockFi and other platforms like it. I want to put my Bitcoin in there to earn interest, but I'm very apprehensive to turn it over to them, as you should be, uh, because you know uh, platforms like that. If you're if you don't know where the money's coming from, then you're probably that money, right? Like um, if if they're not lending out that much and you're still getting like five, six, seven percent, um, you know, I mean, they're probably taking your money and investing it in gambling or something like that. So, you know, I, I wouldn't and not your uh, not your coins, uh, you know, if it's not in your possession, not your keys, not your coins. That's that's basically it. Um, why do we need to promote hardware wallet when any individual can get uh, get a USB stick, install Tala, Tails or Ubuntu on it and use it even as air gap system with the latest Electrum? Uh, because, I mean, that that's kind of hard and it's it, it's a little bit more difficult and requires a lot of uh, technical expertise. So that's why I would say. Uh, COVID-1984, <laughs> the pandemic. Yeah, uh, I I think it's a, I mean, I personally think it's kind of a big scam and uh, they, they definitely overplayed their hand. And I, I thought this from the beginning. It's funny because like back in March, I, I think the one of my most ratioed tweets was about how I was disappointed with a lot of churches deciding to close and not, I, I hadn't 
heard of a single one that was just sort of saying, you know what, government, that's not like your domain and we're going to stay open anyway. Uh, not a single one did that. And I got like a thousand comments saying like, hey, you're, you're, you're being stupid, blah, blah, blah. Um, since then, I think people may have changed their minds. Um, and uh, the th- thing is, like, the incentives for a lot of these people are completely skewed. Uh, if you're a hospital, you are incentivized to report COVID deaths. E- e- like, if there's any doubt at all, then you're going to report it as a COVID death because you need, uh, you're going to get paid more money. And hospitals right now are desperate for money because they weren't able to have elective surgeries. People are scared to come in. Everything is going against them. So they need to make up that shortfall somehow. And that's, that's something that they've been doing. So um, in a way, like all of this is, uh, has just been a crazy, uh, you know, process that's uh, resulted in everything being shut down for a while. And who knows how it's going to end. I've been asking people, you know, how's this end? A lot of people think it's the election. I'm, I'm not even sure it's it, it, if it's going to end then uh, because, you know, a lot of people are just walking around really, really scared. And that's something that I, I don't think I really quite appreciated until I was at church on Sunday. And, I, and you know, like it was the first time that uh, my church had opened and we went there and like just everyone couldn't wait to get out of the building because you could just tell there were... They were scared. They didn't want to be in the same, you know, very large auditorium uh, with with other people because they thought they might get infected or might end up killing someone or something like that. So this whole thing is is just a very large, uh, you know, social experiment on how fearful people can get. And it's uh, it's kind of a sad commentary on you know just how many people are extremely scared, and uh, and that's something else that I wrote uh, not too long ago, which is that if this pandemic's shown us anything, it's that you know the virtue that people are lacking is courage. Uh, they 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 fear so much. They uh, fear is the opposite of courage, right? And um, and they they don't. Uh, want to do anything and they they're just sort of frozen and want to stay home and don't want to do anything and there's there's a lot of people sort of in that grip uh, which I don't think they're really necessarily going to get out of even if the government said hey you know it's all clear you guys can go do whatever you want uh, they might stay skeptical because that fear has seriously gripped them and um, you know it's especially disappointing for me as a Christian because you know, you're you're not really supposed to fear anything other than God, and that's that's part of the scripture, and you know part of who you're supposed to be as a Christian. And certainly, you're not supposed to fear death. Um, and many martyrs, uh, uh, you know, attest to that reality. Uh, but you know, the sad reality is, at least in the modern day church, it seems like a lot of people are really, really fearful. Um, and that's kind of sad for me. That's uh, that's really sad for me. Now. Why would a government do something like this? Why, why, why is this happening right now? I, I mean, to a large degree, a lot of, uh, you know, authorities are kind of getting drunk on power, right? Like they, they like being able to um, not necessarily control other people. It's, it's more, I guess, paternalistic than that. It's more, you know, being able to decide what's good for you or what's bad for you. And I'm, I'm sure they have... 
you know, I, or at least I, I would charitably like to think that they are trying to look out for our best interests. But this is, um, you know, an authoritarian's wet dream. They, they get to tell us, okay, well, we don't think it's a good idea for you to go outside, so we're going to make that illegal. Something to that effect. Now, no one's been that extreme, obviously, but they... They're basically able to plan people's lives, and that's uh, that gives them a sense of self-importance and things like that. Um, now, the consequences of that are pretty bad because I, I, I think the anger uh, of people that have been duped, like they, it it exceeds any fear that that they might feel uh, or might have felt. So it's a uh, you know. At some point, people are going to wake up and realize, okay, the, this thing wasn't nearly as bad, um, and you know, I, I didn't need to fear, and they're going to want to blame somebody, and there's uh, there's a target right there. Uh, it's it's whoever instituted these. So, you know, a lot of those politicians that had really high favorable ratings, like back in May, um, yeah, it, it's not going to look very good, uh, you know, come November, uh, if they're up for re-election. If not, then maybe they can write it out. I don't know. It's hard to say. All right, let's see. I think that's about it. Uh, all right, so I, maybe I can rant about some other things uh, from my Twitter Um yeah, so four of the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto are law in the U.S. And uh, I, I, I just thought of the four that were pretty obvious. Uh, the others, I, I think you can also argue, have been implemented to some degree on the, in the U.S. But someone asked me, hey, what, what are they? Uh, it's the second plank is a very heavy progressive graduated income tax, uh, which, which we more or less have. Uh, number five is the centralization of credit in the hands of uh, a central bank, basically, uh, which which we obviously have with the Fed. Um, centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of hands of the state, uh, certainly happening in many places with transportation and communication, the FCC, for example, and so on. And ten. Uh, the free education of all children uh, by government, which we already have. So uh, those are just four. Uh, I think if you look at the other six, to some degree, you know, uh, you know, stuff like eminent domain, like uh, that, that's obviously an infringement on property rights. Um, that's in there as well. So yeah, uh, that's that's uh, the communist manifesto thing. And uh, yeah, uh, I, someone asked me about the entire, uh, you know, GitHub thing that came up recently. Uh, it was about three months ago, uh, a contributor that, oh, well, somebody that hadn't contributed anything to Bitcoin Core asked to change the word blacklist to blocklist. Um, and, you know, I talked a little bit about this on Tone Show, but basically the change went through despite a couple of NACs, and NACs stand for not acknowledged. Uh, they, they didn't want that to go through. But those two NACs were from people that also hadn't contributed to Bitcoin Core. So basically the Axe won over the NACs, and they ended up merging it. Uh, once it was pointed out, then it was it kind of you know uh, blew up uh, you know, on Twitter 
and a lot of people, especially core devs, uh, that were maybe a little more left leaning were disappointed, uh, saying, you know, like the at least the logic in the pull request said that, you know, if this gets even one developer to contribute instead of not contributing, then it's worth it. Uh, the thing is, like, it's it, it once you politicize an issue, it's just as possible that it turns off a developer as it turn uh, it gets them to contribute. So, you know, I it's it's a hard thing to balance, and I don't think they should have let it through necessarily back three months ago. Though, I mean, there's a decent argument to be made for it, but the one that they gave wasn't uh, wasn't one, and it was it was such a small and stupid change that they, it probably should have been rejected, but. They get reverted, uh, well, not reverted to blacklist, but to disallowed or something like that. So, in a sense, uh, you know, both both the original person and the subsequent person got something through. Um, you know, I, I think the thing that a lot of people are scared of is some sort of SJW infiltration of Bitcoin. Um, I think that that's happened in uh, Linux. That's happened in the Go community. I think they have like a whole code of conduct now and stuff like that, which, uh, has very, uh, lots of politically correct statements and things, uh, which can be weaponized. Um, and that's, I think, honestly, something that we need to watch out for. I don't think this was it. I don't think this was anything like that. And, um, and to some degree, I think it was an overreaction, but, you know, sometimes when you have a functioning immune system, the immune system kind of overreacts a little bit. And that's, I, I think, we what we had with uh, with this particular situation. All right. So that's about it. And uh, I, I don't have any more questions uh, from uh, all, all that I've seen. But uh, yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs> if, if this becomes popular, maybe I'll do more of it. Fiat del Invest. This song is done. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. You can ask me more questions next time on Twitter, where I can be found at Jimmy Song. Until next time, Fiat Delanda Est.